morning, everyone. My name is Jim Breckbuehler. I'm the Family Life and Life Groups Minister here at DCC, and I just want to welcome everybody this morning and just uh, happy to get to study God's Word with you. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, this morning, we're going to be studying Luke 9, 57 through 62. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, your paper, or your device right now, uh, go ahead and do that. <clears throat> I'm going to set up a little bit. Hang on a second. I knew I might need this this morning, and so I'm going to take a swig right now. I'm going to set this passage up right now. Uh, Steve talked last week about how Jesus was turned away um, from a Samaritan village. And And in verse 51, it says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven... Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. This is a key passage or a key sentence because what this is saying is this is the last hurrah. This is Jesus now making his approach to Jerusalem where he's going to be crucified. And, and scholars think that he, took, he intended to take the short route, go to Jerusalem through Samaria, and because the Jews hated the, the Samaritans and vice versa, they turned him back. And so that he looks like from Scripture that he took the long way around to get into Jerusalem, which would have been about 100 miles versus 75 miles. And during this time when he is traveling and people are walking with him, he is teaching them. In the next 10 chapters, on up to verse 19, uh, verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus is talking primarily about the cost of discipleship. During this time period, the primary theme over these next 10 chapters is what it means to be a disciple, following Jesus, renouncing everything else, and serving those who are needy and expecting suffering. The previous five chapters and the last five chapters in Luke, they share a lot in common with Matthew and Mark. But these next 10 chapters in Luke are very unique to Luke. And so it really should get ourselves in tune to, hey, this is what it's going to be like if we make Jesus the Lord of our life. So let's read this passage right now. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, foxes have holes and birds have of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom. So when we read this passage, deep theological questions immediately come to our mind like, huh? What? Why is Jesus being so unrealistic and harsh and illogical? I mean, don't go say goodbye to your parents. Don't bury your dead dad. Talking about plowing. And this is a hard passage. And whenever we get to a hard passage like this, we can't go, I don't understand that, i got to move on. If Jesus said it, then we have to figure it out. 
Um, I was looking at my favorite commentary on this this week, and I felt it kind of came up short and because, it, it, again, getting the background behind it. So I moved on to this big book. It's this thick, and it's called The Life, the Studies in the Life of Christ by Dr. R.C. Foster, who's long going to be with the Lord. He was a professor at Cincinnati Christian University. And the verses in the Bible, I mean, in this book are not indexed. So if you want to find commentary on your passage, you have to look. And I'm like, this is going to take forever. So I'm flipping through the book, hoping I get lucky, and I find one chapter, and it's called Hard Sayings. And I'm like, hey, maybe it'll be in there. So there were eight pages in this book that's this thick, and all eight pages dealt with just this passage. This was the hard sayings. There's another parallel passage over in Matthew 8. And so we know that this passage is hard, but we can't skip over it because it is one of the most important passages. Foster writes, Jesus liked to give cryptic answers which the hearers could solve after deliberate study. The inspired writers of the New Testament did not mar the impact of Jesus' ministry on the readers by inserting unnecessary explanations. And what he's talking about there is, when Luke was writing this, he didn't put it in here and then go, oh, wait a minute, they won't understand this potentially at Discover Christian Church in November of 2015, so I better write some commentary. Just as Jesus said it, Luke recorded it, and it's us to up us to figure it out. And he goes on to say, the readers of the gospel accounts are also left to solve the riddle. So just like the people who are walking with Jesus, now we are the hearers, and we're traveling with Jesus, and we need to figure these things out. Now, to think about it, whenever you are forced to dig in and think and go deeper, that's when you grow. Math, science, physics, whatever. The harder we dig and think about it, the more we grow. And Jesus is just being himself the master teacher here. Now, here's a situation. We look at this, don't go bury your dead dad. And, you know, he's talking about plowing and not looking back. And foxes have holes and birds of the air um, have nests. It's like, what's he talking about? And he's using a form called hyperbole. And hyperbole involves exaggerated statements or claims not meant to be taking literally most of the time. And they're designed to drive home the emotion behind the statement or the seriousness of the statement. Hyperbole um, creates a strong impression. A good example, this happens again in Luke 14, 26, when he writes or when he says, if anyone comes to me, but does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. Wow, what a puzzling thing to say. In Matthew 22, he tells us this is love for God to, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We're called to love all through the Bible, and he's talking about hating here. The Bible teaches us to honor our father and mother. We're to bring our children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. And so we look at this, and two things need to be taken into consideration. One, he's saying that you will love me so much 
that it's going to appear that you hate everybody else. The other thing we've got to keep in mind is in the Jewish culture, then everybody was Jews. And so when somebody became a Christian, they experienced intense, intense persecution. And whole families would feel rejected and turn on them. And so they may very well be called to almost hate their previous life. Their families could become enemies. And so Jesus is talking with hyperbole, but he's also talking in terms of it. This may actually what it comes to if you're going to be a follower of mine. Now, because this is hyperbole doesn't mean that we can dismiss these comments, but that we have to even take greater notice because Jesus is using this to drive home a radical point. And that is the cost of discipleship. That's the heading usually in the Bible. Um, in, the, in the NIV, it's called the cost of following Jesus. Now, um, if you have a teen in the home, you've probably done this before, uh, where they may have copped a little bit of an attitude or maybe their grades slipped a little bit or you saw them driving a little bit too fast or something. And so, you know, you go, listen, honey, you're going to have to take about a week off from driving. Okay, that's called grounding. So you're grounded for the next week, and it's like, oh, dad, oh, mom. Yeah, that's just the way it is. But then there are those situations, and I've already got two older boys. One's 26, one's 29. I've been through this. Where they do something so knucklehead, or they do something so dangerous, or grades get so out of whack, you look at them and go, you will not be driving until you are 80. I'm going to put it in my will. You will not drive until you are 80 years old. Now, the kid knows, well, first of all, by the time I'm 80, you're going to long be gone. So I'm going to drive when I'm at least 60. All right? But the point is, they know they are in deep, deep trouble. They may not be seeing the steering wheel for a long time. It's an overstatement to make a point of seriousness. Maybe you're dating somebody and you're trying to woo your lover. And so you could call them and say, you know, or look at them and say, Honey, if you want to talk, you just call me and I'll listen for hours to you because I'm a good listener. Or maybe you might say to them, if you miss me or you need me, and you just let me know, and I'll drive across town in the rain or the snow to get to you. Or maybe you're in school in West Virginia or Tennessee, and they, they need you so badly because they're lonely. They miss you, and you say, I, honey, I will drive through the mountains to get to you. And you're making a point that you love them, and that there's real conviction. But that comes up short. Does anybody know where I'm going with this? Okay, if you're dating right now, listen up, because I'm going to give you a really big tip. What you need to do is you look at them, all right, and you say, oh, baby, there ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no valley low enough, ain't no river wide enough to keep me from getting to you, babe. All right? 
Now, I've lost some of you now because you're going to be thinking, oh, I love that song. Okay, Tammy Tyrrell, um, Marvin Gaye, 1969, 67. You can look it up on YouTube when you get home. All right, back to this now. Now, the truth of the matter is there are physical structures like Mount Everest, which is five miles high, five miles tall, that will keep you from getting to your babe. The Grand Canyon's a mile deep. And that whole Amazon rainy season thing, it'll get up to 25 miles wide or wider. And if you don't have a seaplane or something like that, you are not going to get to your baby. But the whole thing is you are making a radical point. I don't love you just as a friend. This isn't puppy love. I want you as the love of my life. I'm willing to die for you. It's a radical statement. And that's the way we need to approach this with what Jesus is saying. Mark Black writes about this first episode, these, these right here, these six, pass, these six verses. He says, this is the first of several episodes teaching the difficulty of discipleship. This episode deals with the demand that Jesus must rank ahead of home and family. So let's break this thing down now. The first guy. There are three guys here. Two of them offer to be followers of Jesus, and then Jesus calls the middle guy. So the first one says, as they were walking along the road, a man says to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Why is he saying this? We have to keep in mind in the fourth chapter of Luke, Jesus is run out of his hometown. He talks to them and he makes them so mad. They don't just tell him to leave. They run him out to the edge of the city and they're going to push him over a cliff. They want to kill him. So he doesn't get to stay there in his hometown. And so then we go to the eighth chapter. He's in the Gentile area of Gerasenes and then... There he wants to heal a man that's just full of demons. And so he asks the demons, where do you want to go? And they, they, they beg him, basically, send us into this herd of, of pigs. This is 2,000 hogs on a hillside, hides on a hillside. And so Jesus sends the demons into these 2,000 hogs. And they run down the hillside and drown. And... You know, as I say, every time I think about this passage, if you're a vegan, I'm sorry, but I think, man, that's a lot of hams and sausage and bacon just down the drain, like literally down the drain. But that's not the main point of this passage. Um, What he's doing, they look at this and they go, oh man, this is scary. And Jesus, you need to leave. And so they, they, they hustle him out of town. And then last week, Steve talked about the fact that the Samaritan village said, no, no, you can't stay here. You're a Jew, and you're going down to worship where you want to worship in Jerusalem, and we think it's here in Samaria, and so no, you can't come through. Get, get out of here. And so when Jesus is saying this, he's saying, hey, if you're going to be a disciple of mine, you may not have creature comforts. As one writer said, we have to look at these Jesus and his 12 disciples walking along. There were probably many nights when they just had to sleep along the road using their arms as pillows and wrapping their cloaks around them, maybe make a little tiny fire. They were not staying in the Jerusalem Hilton. 
they were tired and they were stressed. It would have been very tough. And Jesus is saying, hey, as far as possessions go, expect that there may not be any. So then we move to the next one. And the next one says, um, Lord, first let me... Jesus calls this guy and he says, follow me. And then the, the man replies, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. So the first thing he does is put a condition on following Jesus. He says, hey, let me first go ahead and take care of my, my, my father who's passed away. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What does that mean? And so basically what he is saying is this. The, the Jews were really big about burial, and they wanted it done immediately And it was a sign of honor and respect. And they were big, big, big into the culture of honoring your parents. And so this passage, that sentence of don't worry about your dead dad would just be like totally contrary to what he's saying. And some people have argued that, well, what he was really saying was this. That, hey, my my dad is dying. So I'll go back and take care of him, Jesus. And then I'm going to come to you. But that misses the whole point. Foster writes this. He says, this explanation contradicts the fundamental teaching of this text. Jesus makes this sharp contrast. Now hear this. Burying a dead body versus ministering to a live soul. In other words, for us to change this from the, der- the, the burial of a dead body into the ministry of caring for a sick parent destroys and contradicts the principle that Jesus is trying to make here. Now listen to what Foster writes, because this applies to us so much today. He says, this disciple has not only made a big mistake in putting his relationship to any human being before his service to Christ. Let me read that again. This disciple has not only made a mistake in putting his relationship to any human being before his service to Christ, but he has overlooked the urgent nature of the campaign in which he is engaged. That is, seeking to save lost men while it is still possible to win them to faith repentance, and obedience. And Jesus is basically saying that those that are spiritually dead will not fail to take care of the detail or bearing the dead body of a loved one. You take care of ministering to living souls. And see, the principle that he's saying here is not that you shouldn't go take care of your dad, but you go and you, may, you get right back here because the whole point is, is that this is about the urgency of ministering to people and sharing the gospel. And we go to the third guy now. Still another says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. That sounds like a reasonable explanation or a request. And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom. Now, I think it's important we understand something about the farming situation. When my mom was born on a dairy farm in Magnolia, Ohio, I'm sure there are a lot of people have been to Magnolia before. It's up in Stark County. And um, as we would take her back and just drive around the old farm in her area where she grew up, 
we just go down the road, and she just kind of wistfully look out of the window and say, you know, that farmer's got straight lines. That farmer's crops look great. They're straight. Every once in a while, wow, that guy's lines are crooked. See, her dad and other farmers knew that as they're plowing and then planting the crop, that they have to stay focused on, is it, on exactly what is ahead of them. And if they don't, that the plants will grow in crooked. Like if they plow crooked and then they plant them crooked, then as they're trying to cultivate, which is the third thing that you do, you go down between the rows of the crops that are already growing, that as you're going down through there, you will start to hit the very crops that you're trying to grow. And then on top of that, it will mess up the harvest because the harvesters have a hard time going down through there. So the crops have got to be straight if you're going to have a good crop. And so it is very important for a farmer to stay totally focused, whether they're driving horses or an oxen or a $300,000 tractor. And they're staying on track. And Jesus is using this analogy because he's saying, hey, once you've put your hand to the plow, and apparently he's talking to this guy as a disciple already because he said, if you've already put your hand to the plow and you start looking back, then bad things can happen. You can go off track and bad things. You can lose your focus and it won't be on me. See, farmers could hit rocks. They could get caught up. Their oxen could get messed up. They could get caught up in the rains. There are so many things that can go wrong if they don't look forward straight ahead. And that's what happens with us when we don't look straight into Jesus' face and stay focused. So let's look at the implications and applications of this. First of all, I think it's so important that you don't look to the left and the right this morning. Like, well, well, Bob and Susie are doing that, and we're doing at least that, or I'm doing more than John and Lily. I hope these are not real people if they are, because I don't know anybody by those definitions. I don't mean to be calling you out. But um, that God speaks directly to you this morning. Don't compare yourself to anybody else. Let him speak directly to you on this topic this morning. And the whole point of this passage this morning is that Jesus has to be greater than our distractions. If you want to write this down, I came up with just kind of an interesting thing, to, a quick way to remember what he has to have a priority over, and that is the acronym FOP. It's just family and friends, obligations and possessions. Family and friends are obligations and possessions. Jesus has to take priority over them. He's not requesting it. He's demanding it. He's saying if you're a Christian... This is what I want priority over. That's pretty much everything. So here are some keys to prioritizing, and we're just going to blow through this because I want to spend time on application this morning. I think these are four words that we need to keep in mind. The first of these is obedience. If we're going to prioritize Jesus, we have to be obedient. And we look at this first part up here, love God. 1 John 5, 3 says, this is love for God to obey his commandments. How do we love God? We, we obey what he tells us to do. And if we're going to prioritize him, then obedience has to be a big part of it. It's got to be, that is it. The second thing we need to do is there has to be a sense of urgency. Hebrews 9, 27 tells us, 
Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. In other words, once a man or a woman dies, there's nothing we can do about it. So we have to have an urgency about us as Christians to share Christ with people. So obedience, urgency, and the third thing is we've got to make hard choices. We're going to be forced to make changes in ourselves. We have to maybe change our situations that we're in. We can't stay the same and expect different results. And the fourth thing is we have to pour ourselves out. Um, what I mean by this is a lot of times people will say, you know, I, I, you know, I just really, we're, we're, we're pretty stressed and we don't, we really like to keep it so we have a balanced life. But the problem is the busyness is not coming from the church. The busyness is not coming from Jesus. It's coming from all the other things in their lives. And we're, we're called to pour ourselves out. If we look at the disciples, I mean, these guys would have been tired. They would have had horrible sleeping conditions, and they would have been on the run. They would have feared for their lives. Living the Christian life is not really a balanced life. We need to pour ourselves out. Isaiah 58 is a favorite verse of mine. It says, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness. And so the question becomes, do we want to pour ourselves out and our light will look like a Bic lighter? Or will we pour ourselves out and we're going to look like a big bonfire? So again, those four words, obedience, urgency, well, actually four statements, obedience, urgency, make the hard choices, and lastly, pour ourselves out. Now, let's talk about applying this. I've been 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 at life long enough now, I've seen pattern develop in life. And this is something that I know we just really need to guard against, and so I'm going to speak to you and And listen to if this might be applying to you. It has to me in in the past. We have to watch that we don't make excuses in a particular season of life because that can become a lifelong habit. So you take middle schoolers and high schoolers, and they are... um, involved in athletics and academics and all those things, and you say, hey, why don't you come to youth group and, and get involved and, and take and go to this service project and go to CIY. You'll learn and worship and all these. And their response back is, you know what, we just, we're so busy with the team, and I usually spend Sundays studying and all this, but, you know, I will at some point. I, I know I need to do that. And they never get around to it. And then they go off to college or they enter the workforce. But if they're off to college, then when you ask, hey, are you involved in a campus ministry there? I can get you hooked up. Well, I am just so busy studying because we all know that college students don't do anything other than study, right? And so they really don't ever get involved then. And then they get out of college, and then like those that come around of high school, they're entering the workforce and then you say, hey, how about getting involved in, in this or that? And they're like, you know what, right now I'm, I'm just starting out in my occupation, but I will. 
And then maybe they start dating or they might even get married and they're like, you know, I need to nurture that relationship right now, but I will. And then maybe they get married and then at that point, maybe they're blessed to have children and all of a sudden, and now it's play dates, soccer, everything else. And then, you know, we would, but boy, we are just, the kids are just, you know, really pushing us. And then they become empty nesters. Hey, what about doing this? You've got some time on your hands. You know, you could serve. You've got this. Well, you know, right now we have, you know, we've been having these kids. or They're out of the house finally, and I'm, I'm done working. And so I just want to know. I don't want to be tied down with anything right now. And at every season of their life, there's been an excuse not to make Jesus the priority of their life. And you read this passage, and Jesus is saying, if you're going to be a Christian, that is not acceptable. This is a hard passage with high expectations. The difference between people who don't make him a priority and people that do I think it's simply this. They make a choice to make Jesus their priority. Because we've got middle schoolers and high schoolers here that are sold out for Jesus. They're at everything, but yet they're in academics. They're good at academics, and they're involved in athletics and band. We've got young adults here. We have kids in college that are involved in their student ministries on campus. We have young adults that are starting their careers and dating and just early married. They're serving and they're studying their Bibles and they're plugged in. We've got young parents here that take part in serving while they're dragging their little ones around and they're showing them what it's like to make Jesus the priority of their life. We have empty nesters that are involved in all kinds of things. And the, the, the difference between the first group and the second is the second group has made a decision to make Jesus a priority. And the thing is, is they prioritize and put those things in place so that they feel that that is where I need to serve, that's what I need to do. Somehow, they can still do the same things. God somehow allows them to work it out. They still have time. I don't know how it works, but they just get it done. Are you making that choice to prioritize? Or are you in a habit of potentially making lifelong excuses that are not acceptable? Um, We've got some crazy single parents here. And um, I look at them. I just love the single parents here. And, you know, they're under... Uh, extra financial strains. And, of course, there's only one parent in the home, so they also have time constraints. But they serve here. They're just taking their kids, and they're doing all this stuff. And sometimes I look at them, and it's like, I just don't know how they do it. But, you see, they have prioritized Jesus in their family. But yet I have approached families who we would think of kind of the idealistic picture, uh, mom, dad, two kids, a dog in a nice house, and I approach them and they go, hmm, you know, right now, just, you know, not part, just can't do it right now. But 
you know, we'll think about it. We'll pray about it. It doesn't allow this. This passage should challenge you if you're in that situation. Maybe you're being called to leave a comfy occupation for less pay. Maybe a smaller house because God's laying it on your heart. He's wrestling with you right now to maybe go do some kind of inner city work or, or uh, maybe enter the ministry or become a missionary and move to some crazy place that will just freak your parents out. I have a good friend in Washington Courthouse. Her name is Andrea Butterball. And Andrea worked for us when she was in college, and um, she did accounting for us. And then she went on to become the tax manager of the Columbus Dispatch. Big, big job for the Wolf family. And then eventually she ended up uh, adopting two children along, and then she and her husband Kyle have raised uh, the two boys and then their, their biological daughter up in the, the training and instruction of the Lord. And... Um, so she came back to work for us part-time, and then as time grew on, as she just grew in her faith, she just took on this passion for people that are needy in Washington Courthouse. She would just get integrally involved in their lives to the point where her and Kyle bought a house downtown Washington Courthouse where it's of lower economic status down there, and she was right amongst the people that she is serving And now, she works part-time at her church. I remember, we, we kind of have a brother-sister relationship, and she's like, yeah, I'm going to take my friend, and her husband is really kind of like crazy slash violent, and, and I'm going to go over with her and get the guns out of their house. I'm like, okay, you know, this is not a good plan, and this is dangerous, but, you know, She's like, I'm not, I'm not listening to you. And so she went ahead and did it, you know, but that's just the way she is. She, has, she is locked in on pouring herself out to people and taking risks. Columbus Dispatch tax manager to someone who is working in the church part-time and caring for the needy. And if she was here, I know she would say, that she's much more fulfilled now. Is God calling you to something like that this morning? And you're wrestling with it? Then maybe it's, boy, I need to just, Lord speaking to me big time this morning. Maybe you have a situation where, you know, you've given your life to the Lord and you're, you're going along pretty good, you know. You're, everything's going good. And then people from the past come back. Your friends you used to hang out with, and they're like, hey, man, we haven't got together for a long time. Let's get together. And you're like, oh, really? You know, I just I don't want to. Oh, come on. I know you've done all this Christian thing, but, you know, you've got to get together with your old buddy here. So you go out with him. And, you know, you get distracted, and you start looking back. And all of a sudden, you wreck. Or maybe there's somebody in your family who puts unrealistic expectations on you and they're like, hey, just because you're doing this Christian thing doesn't mean that you shouldn't be at my every beck and call. And they're demanding and you're like constantly looking back and you're trying to figure out what you're going to do and you continue to get this. You're wrecking. And see, this passage is telling you something that's very hard. There may come a time when you 
have to sever ties with old friends, potentially even distance yourself from family, and maybe you're in relationships right now that are not God-honoring, and you have to end them. I was trying to figure out what my big distraction is. And I know we don't have like five hours or really be like a week-long retreat. But anyhow, the, the thing that I think came, I'm not, I'm not really into possessions, and I don't put people on pedestals. I'm not, you know, I don't like, whoa, look at them. And so I was thinking about the thing, what really distracts me from being the disciple that I could be? And for me, and I think for maybe some of you, I think it's our attitudes. For me, it's my attitudes. And I'm like, well, what's my number one attitude that really messes me up? And for me, and I've shared this before, and I'm working at it, I'm doing a lot better, but it's the sin of worry. That's the same thing as not trusting the Lord. And I'll be going along, and I'm like, you know, Lord, you've just got everything under control, and I trust you, and, and I know that, you know, I just do my part, and you'll do yours, and I can enjoy a, a joyful life. But then I start looking at it, and I see health issues maybe with family members, and then, you know, maybe a financial strain comes along, and then, you know, things here at the church. I mean, sometimes things come up here that it's not always just pleasant every single day. And so there, you know, things come up here, and we're worried about things. And then, you know, there's just all these things, and I'm just looking back so much at times, and I just go right over the edge. I wreck my plow. It it gets thrown, I get thrown over the top, I get caught in the reins of the oxen, and they're just dragging me along. Like, I'm not a pleasant person to be around at times like that. And then I find the next morning, Lord, please forgive me for being such a jerk. Does anybody else suffer? Is I'm the only person like that? Anybody? Are you brave enough to answer? Raise your hand. Okay, good. Do your attitudes serve as distractions? So it could be worry like mine. It could be bitterness maybe. You, you let that get in the way. Anger. A lack, a willing, a lack of willingness to forgive. Maybe you suffer from the sin of lust. You name it. Last thing. Do you have a sense of urgency about sharing Christ with people? And we can tell that quickly. If, if your distractions are greater than your urgency, you can look back over this week or this month and say, okay, who's in my wheelhouse that I'm talking to about Jesus? Who did I take to coffee this week or this month? Who did I check up on and say, hey, are you coming to church or how's it going? Or who am I praying for? Because that is a good display of your level of urgency. A lot of Christians will go their whole life and never lead anybody to the Lord except those that are within their own family. What we're going to do right now is we're going to close with a silent time of guided prayer. And at the end of it, um, the praise team will be up here and we're going to offer a time of invitation. Maybe you have sat here week after week after week and you're like, I want to give my life to Christ, but I'm going to get this straight first, or I just can't turn that over to him yet, or I'm just not, you know, Jesus is saying, hey, stop letting the distractions get ahead of me. Just come. I'll heal you. I'll be down in front. You just come up. You confess Jesus is your personal Lord and Savior. You don't have to. I, I, I walk you through it, and then you can meet him 
in baptism and have your sins washed away, and you can walk out of here a new person. And you may go, yeah, but I just can't do that in front of people. Then we'll do it after the service. But right now what we're going to do is we're just going to come before the Lord and we're going to pray over the distractions that are in our lives that are getting ahead of Him. And so with that, if you guys will just pray with me, I'll lead you through this and we'll pray and then we'll worship. Dear Heavenly Father, um, we come before you right now. Um, I'm first in line. Um, for letting distractions get in the way. And so before we even think about that, I know that some of us have had a hard week. Maybe we feel a roadblock um, between you and us. And so for the next little bit, let's just take time to ask God to forgive us of those sins, to confess them, and just to remove any roadblocks that might be there this morning so we can just hear his voice clearly. Lord, I would just pray right now um, for everybody in this room. Uh, I would pretty much guess that everyone in here has at least one distraction or more that's crowding you out, that's getting ahead of you as their priority that you demand. And so right now, I would just ask that you lay that one, two, or three top things on their heart and make it very clear as to what you want us to hear, what we need to get rid of, what we need to change so that we move you to the front of the line and our faces are firmly on you. Generally, Father, what I would ask now is that for each of us that you will give us some kind of an action plan or a clear path to just begin changing things, whether that means to move out of something or to move towards something or to buckle down and do more, whatever it might be, I would just now ask that you will show the path to the change we need to make.
dear Heavenly Father, we, um, we um, come before you and just ask as a church body that th- this will be a day where we really look back and say, I made a change. And it's so easy. We walk out of here and immediately we're going to get caught up in the next things we need to do today. And then Monday morning is going to hit and, you know, we just get swept up. But I just pray that we'll just be praying for each other this week. Just be praying as a church body for each other that we will not be distracted this week. That this will be a point in the history where we will just say, hey, this is where I rededicated my life to just making Jesus my priority. Forgive us when we've failed in this area, but we also know that you give us the Holy Spirit to help us do that. We give this time to you right now, and it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.